0: Okay, so I'm glad you're here, and uh, I uh, we're we're between the we're between the two great redemptions right now between Purim and Pesach, and uh, so I, I want to I want to discuss that and also something that's been coming up a lot uh, lately. So I want to maybe uh, explain it a little bit. Is this notion of, of how to uh, how to keep inspiration going? Um, throughout the week, because sometimes uh, we get a shot of inspiration, and then it's it's very elusive. It it, it sort of um, can quickly evaporate. You know, there, I, I once uh, once stumbled upon these words, but they stayed with me, which was the, the physics of spirituality. Um, there there are sort of like certain laws, if you will, to um, to to just how spirituality works. Um, We tend to think of it in terms of this sort of like very ephemeral, sort of amorphous thing. It comes, it goes and everything like that. But actually there are sort of some concrete rules which govern it. And if you know them, then you can stay ahead of the curve. You know, I I was reading not too long ago. I wish I could quote the source. I'm pretty sure I read it in the uh, New York Times uh, book review. And it was like a little paragraph within um, this, this discussion. And I believe this happened in the beginning of the 1800s. I'm not positive, but I think that was, you know, around when this happened. And I believe it happened in Germany also. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, um, basically, a book came out that for the first time, scientifically categorized the different types of clouds in the sky. And... I've been thinking about this because um, lately we're here in Los Angeles. The weather has been awesome. One thing that you don't really have in in Los Angeles is weather. You know, it's kind of just kind of sunny and warm. And that's, you know, you get into this sort of like hypnotic state, which is uh sort of very challenging sometimes. You know, on the East Coast where I grew up, you had seasons and you had weather and you could mark the passage of time. Here it's sort of like a bit of a twilight zone where just like, months roll into years, and you know, you, you, you never know. And a lot of that has to do with the, uh, the consistency of the sort of sunny and warm weather. You know, but lately we've been having a lot of rain, thank God, and, and as a result of the rain, we've been having some pretty massive, impressive clouds. By the way, if you don't know it, there's a blessing, actually a Torah blessing that you can say over beautiful clouds. Um, it's Baruch Atah Hashem Elohim Ose how wondrous are the works of, of, of nature, mm-hmm. God. How wondrous mm-hmm. are your works. And this is actually the same blessing that you mm-hmm. say over lightning and over huge mountains. It's kind of a catch-all for magnificent um, uh, natural phenomena. Uh, if you will, it's sort of like the Chalcol, um which is kind of the catch-all blessing for foods uh, of, of, of natural phenomena. And I had a... a a wonderful uh, experience, actually, with my son, who's uh, he just turned nine, and we were driving through a canyon, and there was just a, an especially large uh, uh, vista. It was really it just it stretched out, and you saw hills, and above them we had massive, huge clouds. And I, you know, my son's in the back seat, so I can't see him as we're having this conversation. Um, and I told him, you know, there's a blessing that you say over clouds. And he said, Oh yeah, what's the blessing? And they told him the blessing. And I said, You know, here's when you would say the blessing. If if in looking at it it arouses in you love of Hashem and hashemayim, like awareness of, of God's greatness, that's when you would say the blessing, if you feel that. So we drove and it was about ten seconds later and I heard a little voice from the back seat Parukata the Bakinum. You know. he, he thought about it he felt the arousal of his soul and he said the blessing it was really, it was something but, but the, the point that I wanted to make was this idea that, that for the first time someone categorized clouds in the sky and that had never been done before because it was just something that was just there It was just there. And no one could imagine that you could apply that level of critical thought to something that was just there. And so that blew people's minds, basically. It blew people's minds. Um, So anyway, here we are between, between Pesach and Purim. And by the way, I gave an assignment... uh, Or I issued a challenge, if you will, to the people at at, uh, Third Meal Shalashudas yesterday. And uh, I'll mention it to you guys, too, in case you want to participate. You know, we're going to get into all sorts of um, levels of Purim and Pesach and what it means to be in between. And these two great redemptions and everything that... uh, or some ideas, anyway, on it. But on the most minor level, perhaps, (laughs) this is sort of like just at the end, but I'm saying it first, I just noticed that, that Purim and Pesach both start with the letter P. You know, and they're very different holidays. They both start with the letter P. So I invited everyone to give an explanation of why Purim and Pesach begin with the letter P. You have one minute, and everyone's going to get a turn around the table this coming Shabbos at So, So something to think about, something to think about over the course of the week. You will be judged for originality? <laughs> Sources? <laughs> okay. Um, so let's get into this idea. So the first thing that everyone has to know is that Purim and Pesach, which are two great redemptions, are very much linked. And they're not just thematically linked, they're halachically linked. In order, by, by Jewish law, they, they also go together. Not just, oh, similarities. How so? Because if um, there are two months of Adar, uh, which happens uh, sometimes, um, then, I think it's every nine times in 17 years, something like that, if, uh, if there are two months of Adar, which month would you have Purim in? Since Purim is the 14th and the 15th of Adar, which, which month would you have it in? So, so if you ask me, I would say the first month of Adar, because you should run to do the mitzvah. But that's not the answer. The answer is that you have it to have it in the second month of Adar, because it's to link it to Pesach, which is 30 days away. So in other words, by Jewish law, and it says this, what I just said clearly in the Gomorrah, um, in Gomorrah Megillah. So the two great redemptions of Purim and Pesach have to be tied together. So what is the nature of these two redemptions? How are they linked? And what does it tell us about the lives that we lead and how to live our lives? So, Purim represents God's presence, his ongoing presence in a world of concealment. And you realize, not only is he there when you don't think he's there, but he's been there when you haven't thought he was there. That's actually an equally great level of realization. Not just that he is there When you don't think that he's there, but he's been there all along. He's been there all along when you didn't know that he was there at all. You know, the Roman Russia, Titus, Titus in English, uh, we have a recording of the events that happened when he went to destroy the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Um, he was really... I mean, this guy... This guy was into it. Alright? You want to know how into destroying the Beis Amigdash he was? I mean, he was really... This guy was really dedicated to, to his thing. First he takes a sword and he cuts the, the curtain, you know, in front of the Holy of Holies. And it said that the curtain started bleeding... So that's, okay, I don't even begin to know what that's saying, okay? But that's, that's what our sources say. Then he takes a Torah scroll, puts it out on the Mizbeach, and lies with a prostitute on top of the Torah scroll. All right? This is really a dedicated individual. All right? So now, man, I don't even know why I brought that up. <laughs> Oh, concealment. Concealment. So how could God allow that to happen? Alright, well let me, before I give you the, the answer, the real answer, let me just tell you something from the Nefesh Chayim, which is just a very important understanding in terms of understanding the, the, the vanquishing of the Beis Amigdash at all. See, you have to understand something. You see, let me, let me tell you something. If something is infinite, imagine I have a, a rope which is infinite, or a string that's infinite, and I cut one little portion from that infinite thread, right? So now I have a little piece of that infinite thread. How big is that piece? Infinite. Infinite. In other words, if you tap into infinity, even a small portion of infinity is infinite. You understand? So, so God's presence fills the entire world and the entire universe, and beyond that even. Remember, it's a very important point. It sounds like a subtlety, but one always has to say it explicitly, which is that God not only fills the world, but he transcends the world. Because otherwise we get into a problem where we say God fills the world. If we don't say that he also transcends the world, then we reach the conclusion that God and the universe are one and the same. A equals A. And that's a mistake. That means ultimately that God equals nature. And that's not, that's not it. God is beyond nature. God controls nature. Nature is just a small, tiny kingdom of God. In fact... It's one of my favorite teachings. Um, which is that there was a debate in heaven when God wanted to save Abraham Avinu. When he was thrown into the fiery furnace. The Kivshon Ha'esh. Okay, Nimrod. You know, the first great secular speaking, the first great king of the world, who sort of conquered the known world. And he had the the garments of that Hashem made for for Adam Arishon. He had these garments, and those garments went to Esav. Esav, the brother of Yaakov, killed Nimrod. And actually, these were the garments that Yaakov Avinu dressed up in when he disguised himself as Esav in order to get the blessing from Yitzchak. And because they were worn by Adam Arishon originally, they had the smell of Gan Eden on them. And Yaakov Avinu says, I smell... No, Yitzchak says, I smell... The smell of Gan Eden on you. So, besides just the, the holiness, the kedusha of, of Yaakov, we, the, the the rabbis say, well, that was mm-hmm. from the clothes which came from Adam Arishan, right? But anyway, Nimrod was this great king. Nimrod was this great king, and Abraham Avinu was basically upsetting the entire universe because he was saying he was reminding the entire world that there's one God, and this was undermining the authority of Nimrod. So Nimrod throws him into this furnace, okay? Now, there's a debate among the angels in heaven. How are we going to save Abraham? Because we know there was a great miracle and Abraham was saved. How are we going to do it? So the angel of ice says, I'll come down and I'll put out the fire. Right? But then the angel of fire, which I believe was Gabriel, says to Hashem, No. No, no, no. I, the angel of fire, am going to come down and put out the fire. Now, fire can't put out fire. Right? If you have a big fire, and then you put a fire in the fire, the fire is not going to put out the fire. So, what was the logic behind that? He says, if you send the angel of ice to put out the fire, which is logical to us, that's how you would do it, right? People will say there are two powers in the world. There's the power which commands the ice, and another power which commands the fire. And the power of the ice is stronger than the power of the fire, but there are two fires. There are two, rather, there are two powers. That's the lesson that people are going to draw from it. So I, who am fire, who, according to the rules of nature, and then capable of putting out fire, let me come and put out the fire so that everyone will know that since fire can't put out fire, yet fire did put out fire, that there's only one power in the world. The one who commands everything. There's not God and nature as two separate entities. God controls all of creation, including nature. And God said, okay, that sounds good. (laughs) Yeah, do that. Do that. Do that. I like that, you know. So, of course, all this comes from God, right? So, so, so the idea is, there are not two powers. There isn't God in nature. God commands everything. So, we can't say that God just fills the world. God fills the world and transcends the world. And the entire world is a subset and an extension of Him. Okay. So, now, let's get back to this idea how could Hashem have, so to speak, stood silently by while Titus desecrates everything? Okay, we haven't left that subject. But first we have to get back to the Nefesh Achayim. So the Nefesh Achayim says, points out this idea that God fills the entire world, but he's even, He even more fills the Beis Migdash or the Mishkan. That's even more so a dwelling place for Him. His presence is more openly revealed in that place. It doesn't mean that He's there and not every place else. Because remember what we said, even a a snip of infinity is infinite. So, God fills all places, but He's even more revealed. His infinity is even more revealed in that place. And by the way, a lot of people who have trouble concentrating in prayer, they'll They'll ask a question. They'll say, "Well, how when I go to shul, can I can I be more um, can I can I have the concentration to pray?" And and a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, the problem with that very question is that the person isn't in a state of prayer when they're not in shul. What are you just praying when you're in shul for? Right? Like we just heard Rabbi Weinberger say in the name of Rob Cook that the soul is constantly praying. The soul is in an ongoing state of prayer. Prayer is not something that you get yourself to do. You're always praying. So it's just tapping into that energy of prayer and allowing it to come out of your mouth and to fill your consciousness. It's always going on. It doesn't have to be manufactured. You see... Boy, we've got a lot of different thoughts up in the air, so bless me I should be able to resolve all these different things. We've got the Nefeshachayim, we've got got a lot of different things. Titus, don't, I have to resolve that. Okay, I better do it right now, because I don't want to not address these things. The idea is like this. It's true God fills this place even more so, the Holy Temple. However, however, when the Jews vanquished expelled God's from, God from their heart. God's presence left the Beis HaMikdash. So by the time, by the time, the Babylonians and the Romans in their respective uh, attacks knocked down the Beis HaMikdash, at that point it was just sticks and stones. God's presence, the Shekhinah, had left that area a long time ago. Why? And this is something that's very, very empowering. Please pay careful attention. The direct correlation is when we expelled God from our hearts. God's presence left the Beis Hamikdash. Now, what's empowering about that? Because it teaches us how to rebuild the Beis Hamikdash, how to rebuild the Holy Temple if we put God back in our hearts, that in itself is the most effective, direct way of rebuilding the Holy Temple. And we know that rebuilding the Holy Temple is basically going to be the turning point in human history, marking the arrival of the perfection of the world. Okay, That's going to be the fulcrum point. And that's what we're all working toward, basically. So how do we do it? By filling our hearts with Hashem. That is the main avodah. Okay, and connecting our hearts and our minds. I will tell you something, you know. Um, without going into too much detail, but I just want to touch on one point that I heard from Rabbi uh, Blech on, on the olive base. In terms of the letter Resh, the letter Resh in general is considered a, a negative letter because it stands for Russia, which is wickedness. But it also stands in the in the uh, in the works, the Osios of uh, Rabbi Akiva, which is another great work on the letters, Resh stands for Rosh. So seemingly there's a duality to the letter Resh, where it also stands for greatness because Rosh is the head. And yet Rabbi Vlech wanted to say, but no, we still see in general it's a, it's a negative word. So, but wait, if it also stands for the head, which is the seed of the soul, how could it be negative? So what he wanted to say was, and I think it's a, a, a really a lovely thought, when the head is disconnected from the heart, it can be a source of tremendous negativity. Tremendous negativity. You see, you know, the Torah says that people are not numbers. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, why you, you're not allowed to count people. And whenever you do a census... You have to do it in an indirect way. A person gives half a coin, say. Right? That's how they did in the Torah. Or they give an animal donation or whatever it is. Or if you want to count, do we have a minion in shul? You don't point and count people. You, you, you say a pusuk that has ten words in it. And so now you know if you can get to the end of the pasuk, then you know there are ten people. Or you can count chairs or hats or shoes or whatever it is. Just don't count people. Why? Because if you turn people into numbers, the most horrendous genocidal acts will result. Because then, once humanity becomes an abstraction, you become a number. And then once you're a number, or once you're an idea, then anything can happen. Like the Nazis, Yemach Shamam can say that the Jewish people are a cancer on the body of humanity. And if we remove them, then humanity can be cured. Well, that sounds like a great idea. Who doesn't want to cure humanity? But wait a second, now what is this? Oh, yeah, we're throwing children into... I mean, the worst, most horrific offenses. But it comes when the head gets disconnected from the heart. Okay. Okay. So now so now let's get back to this idea of teach us. How could God have have allowed such a thing to happen? And and it, it came to the point where the rabbis had such questions that they removed the word from the tefila, from the order of prayer, Nora. Nora means awesomeness. They were like, you know something? All these horrific things have happened. And it seems like God has stood idly by. You know, maybe we should remove the word Nora, awesome, from, from the list of praises of God. And then it was restored. And to this day we say Nora in all of our prayers. And why was it restored? Because, you know... If you have an all-powerful God, and we're talking about Hashem, and Hashem is everywhere, and Hashem sees everything, and Hashem knows everything, and Hashem can do anything, and Hashem loves us more than anything else in the entire world. He loves us to pieces, every single one of us, no matter what. Never stops loving us. If you insult Hashem, like how could you, knowing that, how could you ever insult Hashem? But if you insult Hashem, and Hashem can just get rid of you in the most fraction of a second, and he doesn't, that's pretty cool. That's an aspect of his greatness. That's not a contradiction to his greatness. That's a manifestation of his greatness. And so the word Nora was restored to the prayers. Because the idea that he didn't respond tit for tat is awesome. Is awesome. Is awesome. So the point that we've been making is about Purim. And the fact, and we'll get to Pesach and where we are in between, the fact that it's not just that Hashem is there when you don't think He's there, but that He's been there when you didn't think He was there. Which in its own way is an even greater level Of realization. You know. You see. It's one thing to lose something. And then to find it. That's one level. And that's a very great level. But you know what's an even greater level? When you never lost it to begin with. Even though you thought you lost it. Have you ever had this experience? It's a very wonderful experience in the end. It's hard to go through to get to this, the wonderful part. But where, let's say you were with someone and you said something and you you left that person's company and you like that person and you're thinking about, how could I have said such a thing? And I'm so mad at myself. How could I have said that? I, I like this person and, and I hurt their feelings and I said that thing and everything like that and you're kicking yourself and all the rest. And then some period of time later, you see that person and coming from a love for that person and a, and a, and a regret for having said that, you say, you know something, I, I'm so sorry that I said this thing, you know. And the person said, what? I don't even... You, you, Oh ah, ah They weren't even aware of it to begin with. Has anyone ever experienced that? Do you know that feeling? And then you're like, ha, oh, thank God. It was hard, you, you put yourself through a lot, but the relief that you feel to know that it was all in your head and then the other person was that's an even greater level. I mean I mean if the person if the person said, Yeah, you know, it did hurt my feelings, but I worked through it and I do forgive you, okay that's a level. But isn't it even better when the person was never bothered to begin with to know that you never, lost, you never lost it to begin with? Forget about losing something and finding it when you realize it was never lost to begin with. It was never a problem to begin with. You know, I, I told you the story earlier about driving my son with the clouds, right? Making the blessing. So let me just tell you about the game. We got to the game. I was driving to a basketball game, and uh, they played a team which was much better than they were, and um, it was actually a, uh, this team was destroying them, and by halftime, they were up probably by, and these are small kids, so they don't score a lot of points, they were up by a good, say, 30 points, (laughs) you know, by halftime, okay, and the coach was really great, the coach was really wonderful, you know. This coach I found out later, I I had the privilege of of sitting with him uh, at the Purim Suda, and he told me stories about how he made minyanim in Vietnam as an officer driving around collecting Jewish soldiers around Vietnam in order to have Friday night services. All right? Mr. Kaplan, very amazing, amazing to hear this, you know. Um, so, so he's talking to the kids and the kids haven't got a, a chance, a chance at all of catching up, much less winning this game. they they've, they've already lost, okay, but they've got to play another half. All right. So he gives them a pep talk. And then at the end of the pep talk, he says to them, what's the score? Right. And they look up. And he says zero zero. Right? It's a tie game. In other words, whatever you're thinking, whatever's holding you back, so many of us we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, so many of us are held back because we think we messed up over there and we messed up over there and we're afraid to act because we've messed up so many times. How can I act? How can I go forward? How can I make that phone call? How can I approach that person? How can I do it? But you know what? If the the score is 0-0, what's stopping me? There's nothing stopping me. Hi. Hello. You want to go to the movies? No? Okay. That's okay too. I didn't want to go either. 0-0. 0-0. It's not just that Hashem is there when we didn't think He was there. He was always there when we didn't know He was there. We never lost it to begin with. It's not that we found Hashem. He never was anywhere but there. He never is anywhere but here. It's always right now. It's always right now. One of the deepest things I ever heard um, uh, his name isn't popping into my head right now. Forgive me. Um, but um, he's a big rob and he's been with Isha Torah uh, for many, many years. Um, and he, uh, he he said like this. He said, you know, if you have two people in a relationship the one who determines." The one who determines the nature of the relationship is the one who is less involved with the relationship. Yeah, Rabbi Berger, thank you very much. The one who determines the nature of the relationship is the one who is less committed to the relationship. So, in other words, to give an example, if a person calls you every single day, and you call them back once a month, right... You don't have an everyday relationship. You have a -a once-a-month relationship. Because the person who is less committed to the relationship determines the nature of the relationship. Right? Everyone get that? Now, God is calling us, so to speak, every nanosecond. (laughs) Every single second. Because how is it possible that the world even exists? Unless he's keeping it going. And how is it possible that I even exist within the world? Because he's keeping me going. That's a direct phone call. That's him pressing the on button. He doesn't keep his finger off the on button. Because if he took his finger off the on button, you would disappear and the entire universe would disappear. Which means he's directly involved and he's directly calling you every single second. So what's so great about that, The great news about that is that means it's up to us to decide what kind of relationship we we want with God. The ball's in our court. We keep on thinking that the ball's in God's court. You know why? Because we make up the rules. And we make up fake rules. You know? You know, every once in a while, like, my kids will say something. I wish I could give you an example off the top of my head where they'll introduce a new rule in how the household should be run. And it's like completely counterfeit. No, no, I, no, now we do have chocolate before, before we go to school in the morning. No, 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 that's not a rule. That's not a rule. That's a made-up rule by you, and that's not what we're doing, okay? So, so we do that with God all the time. We make up rules about how God interacts with us and how God runs the world. And God, in his Nora state, doesn't say anything. He just hopes, I, I really hope they read this book or go to that speaker. You know what I mean? Because, Or they figure it out on their own. Because they're making up rules. They're making up rules. They're tying themselves up in knots. Why are they doing that? So the idea is, if the phone, if God is calling us every single second, evidenced by the fact that we're still alive, that we still exist, that the world still exists, then it's up to us at any moment to pick up the phone. In other words, there's the greatest lie, listen to this, the greatest lie that we can tell ourselves is that we're we're distant from God. Because by virtue of the fact that we exist, and by virtue of the fact that the universe exists, that means God is right there, and that God is calling us that moment, and all we have to do is pick up the phone. We say, God, I'm so sorry. Hi. Hi. I love you. Thank you. Give me another chance. (laughs) Just, I gotta, I don't even know. But I'm so glad you're there. I'm so glad I'm here. I want to make the most of this opportunity. I don't even know how many times I've been in this world. But please let me get it right this time. Or let me start to get it right. Or help me. I don't know. I don't know what you want to say. You just start talking. Something will come to you. And if you say something wrong, say, I, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry, God. I, that's not what I'm trying to say. Just Or you know something? Sometimes silence. King David says, silence is your praise. But it's got to be covenantic silence. It's got to be a focused silence. Sometimes words won't come to you. But by standing in a state of awe, if you will, before God, without speaking, sometimes your heart is just radiating and, and is connecting where your mouth can't. You know? But at a certain point you have to start talking. That only works to a certain extent. You know, I, I remember many years ago when I when I first started, you know, going to share and everything like that. I remember there was a there was a, a, a Russian boy and um, and uh, he went to hear a lecture and his his English wasn't very good at all. And the rabbi was speaking and everything like this. And this boy was so sincere. This boy was so sincere That he stood, he sat through the whole class, which is, you know, around an hour or something like that. And he hardly understood anything, but just listened and looked with such love and reverence to the rabbi as he was teaching Torah and everything like that. And so you would think, wow, what a guy, right? So someone came up to him, you know, who was much more of a a rough guy. Just like a a rough guy comes up to him afterwards and says, who's older and everything like that. And I think was also Russian, by the way, but had learned English at this point and said to him, did you understand the class? And he said, no, no, but I, I so enjoy just the experience and everything like that. And, and he said to me, that guy better learn something or he's going to end up a total ignoramus. Right? And I really thought, wow, that was really rough what that guy said. And then I thought about it some more and I thought, he's absolutely Right? Because you can only sustain that level of genuine appreciation and everything like that for a certain period of time. At a certain point, the learning's got to kick in. You know, you've got to start opening up a book and learning. Otherwise, at a certain point, you know what? I enjoy looking at him and his beard is so nice and everything like that. And you know what else is really nice? The leaves on that tree. I'm going to go and stare at that tree for a while. And you know what else is really nice? You know, I really like um the movie Goodfellows. You know, I'm <laughs> going that at least I can understand you know. I mean your focus is gonna shift. You're not gonna be able to stay in that place very long. So proactive, okay? One has to engage. One has to engage. Okay. So um I wanna I wanna say something and and uh you know, I wanted to talk more about Pesach, but Pesach isn't going anywhere. We can get to Pesach <laughs> more another time, maybe. I do want to make this one point, though. We were talking about it a little bit on Shabbos, but I, it's it's going to sound very simple what I'm saying. But if you think about it, there's there's a lot to it. I think. You see, Purim and Pesach. The reason why these two things have to be tied together is because Purim is all about the hiddenness of God. okay, And Pesach is all about the open revelation of God. Because on Pesach, Hashem did all the miracles, and He took us out of Egypt. And what I'd like to suggest is, the reason why the rabbis made such a point of saying that these two holidays must go together, and, accord- and it's Jewish law that they have to be 30 days apart, is because there are two great cycles that we experience in our life in varying measures, but everyone goes through this from the first person, Mashiach comes, we're going to continue to go through these two cycles of Purim and Pesach. And what are they? When God is hidden, and when God is revealed in our lives. And when God is hidden, We have to hold on with all of our strength. And when God is revealed in our lives, we have to leave Egypt. We have to make a positive change. So in other words, these are the twin cycles that all of us go through. When God is hidden, hang on! Hang on to the mitzvahs! Hang on to your soul! You know, we were saying, you know, when when we did the sin of the golden calf, it's amazing that, that we read about the, the golden calf after Purim. We have a, 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 a foundation in Torah. It's called the Raful ifne God gives us the cure before the, the disease. Purim is all about the hiddenness of God and how we have to hold on. What happened with the sin of the golden calf? We thought that Moshe was dead. He goes up into the fire, in the middle of the fire on Har Sinai. And and he was supposed to come back by a certain time, and he didn't come back. He's not coming back. And then to make it worse, Hashem sends us a vision of the Sun holding the coffin of Moses. And we think, then we we lose it. Right? Utmost hiddenness. Where's our connection? Who's our connection going to be? You don't need a connection. You don't need a rope to hold on to. You are the rope. You are the rope. You don't need a rope to hold on to. It says in Avos, Take upon yourself a rab, a teacher. You need a teacher. But if for some reason there's no teacher there, it doesn't all disappear. You're standing before Hashem 24-7. That never stops. That never stops. So what was the, the cure? The cure was this idea of holding on, even in the darkness. And then comes the Chate Ego. Of course, historically, that's not how it happened, but this is how the calendar is unfolding, and this is a lesson for us in our own lives. To hold on, even when it seems like all of our connections are disappearing. You know, your rabbi was arrested, and he's been thrown in jail? I'm very sorry. And God should bless him. Right? But what does that have to do with you and me? What does that have to do with the presence of God in this world? Okay, it happened. It's a tragedy. I'm sorry. But what does that have to do with me? Or you? Okay. Then comes Pesach, the open revelation. And when that happens, when it's very clear, then you've got to make a positive move. You've got to make a positive move. And these are the twin cycles. So so you know Hashem... Hashem doesn't have to be. He is. So many of us make the mistake of thinking that Hashem exists to the extent that I think He exists. Or that Hashem is there to the extent that I think that He's there. And you know what the reality is? He's there whether you think that He's there or not. And He's there more than you can even imagine. And it's not subject, or God is not subject or limited to our comprehension of Him. And I once gave an example, and I'll end with this, which is, imagine you're cooking, someone is cooking chicken soup in a pot in the kitchen, right? But the pot is covered, and you don't know if there's soup in there or not. You don't know. You walk into the kitchen, and you see a covered pot. Now you say to yourself, I believe that there's soup in the pot, or you say, I believe that there isn't soup in the pot, right? But you know what? It doesn't matter. If there's soup in the pot, there's soup in the pot. It doesn't matter if you believe that there's soup in the pot, and you're believing that there's soup in the pot is not going to put soup in the pot if there isn't any soup in the pot. If the soup is already in the pot, that exists independent of whatever you think. God is there no matter what we think. God is there. He would like us to acknowledge His presence, that's for sure. But He's there regardless. And that's a huge relief because we don't have to be creating Him. He already exists. And to close finally with the words again as an extension of that, of Rav Cook. That the soul is constantly davening. The soul is constantly davening. You don't have to manufacture prayer. You don't have to manufacture connection. It's already there. Just tap into it. Just pick up the phone and just bask in that relationship, which is ongoing, no matter what.